0: In the 70s, mid-70s, with the experience from the U-2, the SR-71, under our belt, the value of stealth technology being realized. We brought new people into the Skunk Works that were knowledgeable of the electromagnetic spectrum, how radars work. One such young engineer out of Oregon State named Dennis Overhoser, was hired by the Skunk Works. He found himself working on mathematical codes, predicting all kinds of things. One of which was the radar signature of certain shapes and objects in the quest to take stealth technology to the next level. U-2 was generation one, the SRA-12 was generation two, this would be Generation 3. In those days, everybody in industry was interested in stealth. We lost most of our airplanes in the Yom Kipper War because they were detected by Soviet radars. They were engaged by surface-to-air missiles that were guided by radars. and. We literally could not survive.
1: If you've listened to our Season 1 episode called Arrowhead, this story might sound familiar. And that's because we're going to tell a stealth story that ran almost parallel to the F-117. While the F-117 was in production, there was another stealth vessel in development, and it would require the help of the very same engineers who created invisible jets. Dennis Overholzer was a young engineer when he came across Russian papers that explained the possibilities of faceted shaping. This moment would propel Dennis into developing one of the most important jet technologies. At the Skunk Works, Ben Rich is coined as the father of stealth, but Dennis is like the Wozniak of stealth. It was Dennis's research and development that made stealth shaping a reality.
2: I had the fortunate situation of being trained inside this Skunk Works where these guys were all so smart.
1: Early on in Dennis's career, he worked directly with Kelly Johnson to improve the radar cross-section of the DS-21, the Mach 3.5 reconnaissance drone.
2: And Kelly was directly involved. Like I said, he was really the number two Radar cross-section expert in the Skunk works. We were struggling to get improvements, but he was trying to improve a design without looking at the shape
0: first. Dennis was absolutely intrigued with the idea of faceting for a couple of reasons. One... If you could break an object into flat plates, you could pretty well calculate how that flat plate looked to radar. If you assembled the flat plates correctly, you could be virtually invisible to radar because the energy scatters away from the target rather than back to the radar.
1: Larry Dilger, retired Skunkworks program manager. To better picture how stealth shaping works, Larry has a great analogy.
0: If you look in a mirror, you see your reflection, right? So any energy that goes, photons that go into the mirror are going to be reflected right back to you. So you're the radar transmitter. You're also the radar receiver. You see the image. Take a prism, like might be dangling from a, a chandelier. Shine a light on it. All of the facets on the prism scatter the light like beams in all kinds of directions. Not all of that light comes back at the observer. Okay? All right. So, if you would paint that prism with a radar, most of the energy would be scattered in a direction other than the radar, minimizing the radar return. If that return is low enough, it would be lost in the noise. Dennis, not being an aerodynamicist, and some of his cohorts were absolutely convinced that you could apply that to an aerodynamic shape. Aerodynamicists within the Skunk Works didn't think so. So the challenge was laid. Dennis and some very sharp but somewhat unsung heroes developed a code called ECHO. ECHO was used to mathematically evaluate the return or the radar return from different objects. Dennis was working on things that were very, very unconventional and literally scared most aerodynamicists. How do you make a box fly? But by using Echo, Dennis put together a very convincing case to Ben, that if you really wanted to survive, it would be best not to be detected. And if you don't want to be detected, you don't want to return your image to the radar. Dennis convinced Ben who convinced DARPA and some other sponsors, including the Air Force, to look at this faceting thing a little more closely.
1: Skunkworks began developing Have Blue, or as Kelly called it, the Hopeless Diamond. This was the predecessor to the F-117. Dennis used his program Echo to test faceted configurations until they had a configuration that was invisible.
2: Since we had the computer echo, and we could compute the changes overnight, and the competition had no computer code. Who was gonna get to the right answer first, you see? Well, like I say, it, was, it wasn't a competition.
0: We were able to predict the signature, match the signature to test data, and the results were compared to the predictions. And soon, the non-believers started believing. There was a cup of coffee bet.
2: Kelly would go that far. But he bet Ben Rich a cup of coffee that the DS-21 would be better than those hopeless diamonds that Dennis was coming up with. Well... Kelly lost a bet, and it was the only bet that Ben Rich ever won from Kelly. When that happened, everybody said, this is real. The rumor spread through the skunkworks like you wouldn't believe.
0: The hopeless diamond was proof that you could not only minimize the signature return, the echo from a target, but you could actually calculate exactly what that signature would look like. If you could do it to an airplane, what can you do to a ship or to other objects? Dennis had won Ben's attention, trust with the hopeless diamond with Have Blue. F-117 was in the process of being created. So Ben was the guy that really felt that something was needed for surface vessels. Dennis, who works a hundred and, well, more than 24 hours a day, more than 168 hours in a week, it seems. The the, the guy is absolutely a machine. Sat down with a pencil and, and pad and started sketching out what he thought a ship should look like. A faceted ship, much akin to the Have Blue, its predecessor, the F-117, but suitable for marine environment. Parts of the environment don't come into play in an aircraft like they do on the surface of the ocean. The Navy was interested. DARPA was interested. DARPA is in the business of inventing game-changing technology. So it was a natural fit for DARPA. The government and people within the corporation a little dubious about the skunk works, the inventors of the SR-71, designing boats. But within the corporation, we had some very, very sharp marine engineers. Advanced Marine Systems up at Sunnyvale, part of the corporation. Those are the guys that know how the ship is going to behave, you know, in the marine environment. What will make the ship survivable from a structural Point of view how to scale things propulsion systems the draft the depth that the ship is sitting on all of these things it was decided that they should be brought in and they should guide the development of a viable concept they knew that most ships had certain issues that had to be dealt with, one of which had to do with sea keeping. If you look at the surface of the ocean, the surface isn't flat. You get waves, you get currents that cause a ship to rock back and forth. You want the ship to slice its way through the water, not plow its way through the water as a conventional V-Hall would do. That disturbs the water. As the surface of the water is disturbed by something moving through it, it too has a signature. It's got a background on a real rough sea. If you're looking for something down in the water, the fact that the water has been scarred could help. You might be able to follow some of that scarring to its source. An airplane flying through the air sometimes leaves a contrail. If a guy on the ground is looking for an enemy airplane, and he says a contrail, he can't see the airplane, but he can see the contrail. You don't want to disturb the environment that you're in. You don't want to be a mirror, and you don't want to help the bad guy hurt you. So it's kind of the same philosophy. Little different environment, little different set of sensors, which of course requires different levels of expertise. Dennis and guys came up with a shape that they thought was ideal. The catamaran offered an ideal platform because it sat in the water on very narrow struts supported by pontoons below the ocean surface. A swath ship stands for small waterplane twin hull. Swath is a very specific type of catamaran. There are a lot of swath ships out there. The U.S. Navy today uses swath ships that, that aren't stealthy in any way, shape, or form for a variety of missions. Most conventional ships, v hull ships, have a fairly significant draft. In other words, there's a good chunk of that ship underwater. If it's a large ship, You have a dickens of a time getting very close to land. You can almost put a catamaran on the beach. It sits higher in the water. It can slice nicely through the water, minimizing most of the drag. You add canards, fins, and now as you go through the water, you can trim that ship. It's like the control surfaces on the airplane. You want to trim those such that the aerodynamic resistance or drag on the airplane is absolutely minimized. So all of these things came together to create what became the Sea Shadow.
1: Sea Shadow, an X ship built for the United States Navy. The mission was to get as close to invisible as possible, testing stealth technology for naval vessels. The program was a collaborative effort between DARPA, the U.S. Navy, and Lockheed. Larry Dilger was one of several Sea Shadow Skunk Works program managers throughout the lifespan of the program.
0: The real promise to DARPA and its interested partners the U.S. Navy, was to come up with something that not only uh, validated the concept of reduced signatures from ships, but also would provide a platform for evaluating a variety of materials, different materials on the surface of the object, different mechanisms, antennas, windows, appendages, all of these things. If you come up with something that has a minimal signature, then you can add these things and see what their individual impacts are. Shape alone doesn't make something necessarily as small a signature as as necessary. Sometimes there's material technologies involved. We had within the Skunk Works a materials group Those guys knew how these materials behaved, you know, sitting on a hot ramp in the middle of the summer in the desert somewhere, or at 50, 60, 70,000 feet that's very, very cold when you go slow but gets very, very hot when you go fast due to aerodynamic heating. But how would they behave on a surface ship? Would you have to reinvent all that technology or some of that technology? Was it applicable? To different platforms. And we were responsible for providing a lot of those materials. Those were all homegrown.
1: Part of Skunkwork's role on X programs is to foresee future technologies and try to stay ahead of the curve.
0: When all of this, starting with the third generation of, of, of stealth technology, started bubbling up, the government had a guy named DeLauer. Who came out with the guidelines, classification guidelines for low observable technology? Those guidelines were, were, were suitable at the time, but did not take into account what was actually possible, took into account what was proven, what common sense said. But when the the real floor was discovered, how good things really could be, documents like that that guided industry and the government, all of that had to be rewritten. And at that time, the curtain, rather than being raised, was lowered. Because again, every measure has a countermeasure.
1: Sea Shadow would require testing facilities, and test facilities for an ex-ship did not exist.
0: The fact that the government did not have adequate test facilities for evaluating this sort of technology on the open sea, all of that had to be created. And one of my heroes, ADP heroes, was this program manager named Ugo Cody. Ugo was the program manager. He, he reported directly to ben ugo cody lived by kelly's rules assemble a very tightly controlled small team of experts that were skilled at everything that you could possibly need to accomplish something build a test site man a test site operate a test site gather data analyze the data ugo with a very small number of people Managed that side of the program from within the skunkworks. Once DARPA and the Navy embraced the idea of building the ship, the next question was, where are you going to build something like that that the world should not have any view of? Well... The idea of manufacturing and assembling the ship in a clandestine fashion and somewhat in plain sight gave rise to the idea of the Hughes Mining Barge. Having completed the Glomar Explorer program and the recovery of the submarine, it was sitting at Redwood City and it was being managed by LMSC.
1: The Hughes Mining Barge was used for the CIA Glomar Explorer Program, something you'll hear about in a later episode. The barge acted like a floating hangar where a ship could be built and tested on the open water.
0: To build a ship like that, Lockheed went out and hired four or five, maybe a half a dozen different ship-building companies assigning a portion of the ship's structure to each one. No one shipbuilding company, other than Lockheed, would be tasked with building adjacent sections. So literally, nobody involved in building the structure had any idea of what they were building. For all they knew, it was just another flat bottom or flat-sided hull. So the ship was broken down by the designers like a, a, like a jigsaw puzzle. No two adjacent pieces were given to the same company. But when brought together and assembled inside the Hughes Mining Barge, the program really started to take shape. The barge was used to covertly transfer the ship from Redwood City out to the China Islands where the necessary test range, instrumentation, and equipment could be positioned to measure the ship in a natural marine environment. Very, very critical. The Hughes mining barge, being submersible, served as a dry dock during construction and transferred. When it was time to put the ship in the water, it would be partially submerged, its gates opened, and sea shadow could exit the barge under its own power maneuver around the appropriate area, and be measured by whatever devices the sponsors wanted to evaluate it with.
1: Testing included rehearsing missions. Seashadow proved that the SWATH ship design was optimal for speed, agility, and stealth.
0: The fleet tried to simulate every warfighting scenario you can possibly imagine. One of the things that has a tremendous value to a war planner is the ability to get from sea to land quickly, efficiently. It doesn't have to sit way out sea, out on the other side of the breakwater. Because out there, it has to launch boats. Those boats have to come in a long way. Or they have to send a diver in. Well, if you have something that's capable of a large payload, be it Marines and landing craft, be it supplies for a base coming from sea, the closer you can get, the smaller the logistics challenge is. And, of course, getting something close to land dry is a lot better than sending it in wet. That would set up a scene for say, if we had to go in and rescue somebody or we decided to go uh, invade someplace. You want to do it quickly, you want to do it quietly, and you want to do it with with minimal uh, interference. So you want to get in close. So as the Navy brings new technologies into the fleet, it rehearses new missions. In one of these fleet exercises... Sea shadow was used deliberately because it had a very small observable footprint. It could maneuver in fairly shallow water. It could possibly be undetectable. Now, if it was being operated by the bad guys, how would our Navy contend with that threat? So it could be used as a potential adversary, which it was with some of these fleet exercises. For every measure, there's a countermeasure. Uh, security uh, uh, on these types of programs are arguably as important as the technology being invented. Kept out of sight, tested during the dark of the moon, out in a parched of the Chino Islands, where there was no traffic. All activities were shadowed by Navy ships that kept intruders away, never brought out with any illumination, always put away before daybreak, housed in something as innocuous looking as a big, ugly barge. It just did not look like it was something. Classified going on. I'm thinking it was 91, 92 time frame.
1: It was actually 1993 that Sea Shadow was revealed to the public.
0: And it was about to start a fleet exercise that was going to be conducted uh, in daylight. So it was, uh, it was necessary to unveil it to the public. Just prior to unveiling it, a number of the early contributors and some extended family members were invited to come down to see it in the uh, harbor down there in San Diego. And it was deployed there for the fleet exercises.
1: In 2012, the U.S. Navy sold Sea Shadow with requirement that it be disassembled and all sensitive materials destroyed. Although Sea Shadow is gone, the breakthroughs learned from the stealth ship are invaluable.
0: I I, I would say the key breakthrough technology... On the Sea Shadow was purely shaping and the station keeping and the hydrodynamics. We'll we'll call it hydrodynamics rather than the aerodynamics. Some material technology, Sea Shadow took those ideas like a catamaran skimming over the sea, was a technology that had not been employed in industry or in the military establishment, to my knowledge at least. You either were a submarine under the water or on top of the water plowing things up like a tractor through the farm field. But we didn't understand how seawater and stealth technology interacts. This gave us that testbed to do that. The same guys that built the original models based on the hopeless diamond faceting technique, with the steady hand of Ugo Cody and the watchful eye of Dennis Overhoser, were able to man the test site, gather the data, bring the data home, compare it to the predictions, and present it to the customer. They succeeded. They accomplished what they set out to accomplish.
1: Inside Skunk Works is recorded in Palmdale, California, in Fort Worth, Texas. Stay tuned for a bonus story from Larry Dilger. Sea Shadow was a very cool-looking ship and still surprises us every time we see the pictures. If you haven't seen Sea Shadow, we highly recommend visiting our show notes at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunk
0: One of my favorite experiences involve a guy named John Schaefer. John was a professor, he taught electromagnetics, and he pretty good at understanding how radars work. He had learned from other experts that had studied how objects interact with radar. But the problem was they were limited to what was available to measure. And they figured, okay, that's the limits. Those aren't the limits. The limits are somewhere else. (laughs) And you have to take a bunch of young, energetic guys that don't know what's possible and put them to work. And nine times out of 10, they'll come up with something that'll just water your eyes. Kelly hired a bunch of guys that didn't know it was impossible to put a jet engine in a highly efficient aerodynamic shape and come up with a a jet fighter. They didn't know they couldn't do that. They didn't know they couldn't do that within a few months. So they did it. (laughs) You know? Okay, If, if you grasp that, you look at some of the things and see where we've come it's because we don't know where the limit is. But we're smart enough to go look for the bottom. So our young engineers, they need to realize that what they were taught in school is what we know. What they can discover if they get the right job and the right opportunity is what's possible.